January 23rd, 2005, Jesus charges his disciples as they head toward Jerusalem.
31st verse, he had drawn a line in his Bible to remind him that everything prior to the 8th chapter and 31st verse had to do with Jesus' ministry in Galilee, the northern part of the kingdom. After chapter 8, verse 31, then the migration to Jerusalem began, and everything thereafter was totally different from what had occurred before. What we've been talking about these past few weeks was Jesus getting ready to begin his ministry. And he went throughout Galilee. He healed. He drove out demons. He performed all kinds of miracles, miracle of feeding, stealing the waters, stealing the winds. Everything that he did was what one would believe that a Messiah would do. We've got a great man in our midst, they said, and they came out in great crowds to hear it. Now a turning point had come in the ministry of Jesus. He must leave the northern part of the kingdom and move toward Jerusalem where the heart of Judaism rested, in the temple in the city of Jerusalem. And there he must live out his role as the Messiah. Prior to this, no one had any idea that he was the Messiah. He was a good man who could perform miracles. And that was rather commonplace in olden times. And they thought that he was just a great prophet who could perform miracles. But now Jesus had to become specific. So he took his disciples off to Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi is outside of Galilee altogether. And it was a province that was given to Herod by the emperor of Rome. Herod no longer possessed the land. It was given to his son Philip, and thus the name Caesarea Philippi. But before he turned it over to his son, he built a magnificent temple there in honor of the Roman emperor. It was a beautiful place for Jesus to go apart with a staff retreat. In reality, that's what it was. He took his disciples into a staff retreat and said, now let's talk about the way things are and what we're going to do. He was at the foot of Mount Hermon. Water gushed out of the side of Mount Hermon, trailed down the mountainside into the valley, coursed through the valley and became the Jordan River. It was a beautiful place, a place of beginning for Jesus to go with his disciples and said, now let's talk about it. Let's see what it's all about. He began by saying, who do the people say that I am? Well, the disciples said, as we have overheard them talking, some think that you're John the Baptist who's come back to life. Some think that you're Elijah who is to be the forerunner of the Messiah. Most of them think that you are just a great prophet. Jesus surmised that that would have been the reception that he would have received up to this time. But he said, now, here's the critical question. Who do you say that I am? They were all silent, except for Peter. And Peter said, well, you're the Messiah. And Jesus looked at Peter and said, God has 
given you that knowledge. You haven't learned that from flesh and blood. And you will become the cornerstone of my church. But he said, there is a misunderstanding as to who the Messiah is and what he will be doing. You see, the good things that I've done, the miracles I've performed, but that's not why I'm here. There is an idea of the Messiah that he is to be of the lineage of David who will resurrect the kingdom as it was under David, that the Hebrews will rise to a level of new prominence, new power, and the kingdom will be resurrected under the Messiah. But that's no longer the belief about the Messiah. Over the centuries, the disappointment of the Hebrew people was such as they said, well, we've got to look at this from a different angle. We've tried in so many ways to restructure our kingdom through material means, and we're unable to do it. Now we've got to lean upon God. God will send us a Messiah who will restore us through the powers of God and not through the powers of man. And so they were now waiting for a Messiah who would come, who would depose Rome from their land, who would bring the people back to new prominence, who would heal all of their wounds, and they would be a nation equal to what they were under David and even greater. And Jesus said, that's not the Messiah. Let me tell you who the Messiah is. The Messiah is one who will not restore Israel, but the Messiah is one who will restore mankind to God who will reconcile humanity to God, not rebuild a kingdom on earth. And as the Messiah, it can be grown about only in one way, alerting the world to the love of God and is eager to bring about reconciliation. And the only way that that love can be affirmed is by the Messiah suffering not sitting upon a throne with a scepter, but suffering the worst kind of suffering. John would later put it in these words, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten to die in order to reconcile it. Peter couldn't accept that. He rebuked Jesus. The word rebuked was used by Mark to get the attitude that Peter said, don't you dare such a thing, say such a thing as that. And Jesus said, you don't know how tempted I am to escape. If there's any other way, I would do it. I like being the Messiah where I do good to people, to show them the love of God and tell them of the kingdom. But it isn't working. The people are not responding. That's what I want to do. And you become a tempter to get me to continue in this course. Get behind me. He called him Satan. Get behind me that I will not be tempted. This is the humanity of Christ. Don't let anybody ever tell you that Christ lived out a pattern that was unaffected by his humanity. Jesus was totally man while he was totally God. And only by being totally man and suffering good reconciliation come around. And so he rebuked Peter by saying, you are not 
talk about these things. The Son of Man must go, and he must be hated, ridiculed, spat upon, taken to trial, and ultimately he must die. And we're on our way now as we go to Jerusalem. This was a hard time for the disciples because they went into their staff retreat thinking of the glorious things that they were going to do out of what they had experienced in the past. And now he says, we're on our way for me to suffer and die. Once the staff retreat was over, they came out, and all the people gathered together. And then Jesus addressed the people. Do you want to be my disciples? Do you want to follow me as these twelve did? You can. But you must do three things in order to do so. You must deny yourself. Simply put, if you face any situation where your will is in conflict with God's will, you renounce your will in favor of God's will. The young people have a phrase for it. What would Jesus do? You have to deny yourself in order to affirm God. When you are in conflict with God, when you face a decision and you know that this is what God wants, but this is what I want, then you deny yourself in order to affirm God. You must deny yourself. And you must take up your cross. Now, there's so much misunderstanding about this phrase. Ben raised the question in the early. He said he wanted me to be aware of his concern over this before I addressed it. Jesus said, you must bear your cross. Now, Jesus bore a cross of suffering and pain. Too many interpret this as saying, you must bear your cross of suffering and Everybody doesn't have to be crucified. Only Jesus can be crucified. Only Jesus is forced to suffer because he's the Messiah, because we're not messiahs. Let's put it in these words. Take up your cross. Jesus, Paul said, Jesus was obedient to the cross. The cross made demands upon his life, and he was obedient to those demands. And the cross which he was obedient was to suffer and die. We are called upon to assume responsibilities that we fulfill as followers of Christ. To be obedient to God's call to do what he wants us to do is to take up our cross, to become obedient to the cross that Jesus was obedient to the cross. And everyone is charged with a different responsibility. We don't have the same thing. And it isn't in suffering. And for the contemporaries of Mark, many did suffer because this was the time of martyrdom when this book was written. It was written sometime after 64 or 70, and the Romans under, excuse me, the Romans under Nero 
had fallen to persecution. And they were being crucified. They were being sent to the wild animals. In many ways, they were being martyred. And many of these who followed Jesus would be those who would die. And so in reality, when these words were written, many did suffer but it is a matter of accepting discipleship and not seeking the easy way. Taking God's gift through Christ and doing nothing about it. I heard Will Willimon at Milligan about three years ago. Will Willimon was elected bishop in our last jurisdiction time. That was assigned to Alabama. He was named by Newsweek magazine is one of the top preachers in America. And so Robert Schuller had him to come to the Crystal Cathedral to preach. He told on that occasion he had just been to the Crystal Cathedral. And he said before he went in to preach that Robert Schuller said, I only have two things that I must expect of. One, you never utter one word of negativism. Everything in this service is positive. Second is, you must never mention the cross. Well, he said, he took my sermon away from me. Like the writer of our lesson said that he read a book on church growth, and the author of church growth said, if your church is to grow, you must preach sermons that do not bring in any idea of making sacrifices. You must point out the advantage. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote a book on that while he was a prison in the German prison camp, and he called that kind of discipleship the discipleship of cheap grace. You can't get away with it. What it means to take up your cross is to be willing to go where God wants you to go and do what God wants you to do. Take up your cross and follow me. Follow Christ is to take and his teachings and to live up to them. Now, let me get a little personal here on this idea of taking up your cross and following God's will. It is so important that we realize that when we become a disciple of Jesus, we do not become static. We become involved in the development of his kingdom. And our gifts are used by God to bring that about. And each of us has different kind of gifts. Each of us has different opportunities. And it is just using those gifts within those opportunities that we are faithful to Christ and that we are obedient to his leading and his call. I was uh, pastor over at First Church when Ernie Cushman was associate pastor here. Ernie and I are dear friends went all the way back to when I was in seminary and he was pastor of my home church in Mountain City. I had Ernie come to churches many times for revival meetings. And we were chatting one day about preaching while we were both in Johnson City. He said, Vance, you know, when we were in seminary, we were told when you preach, never refer to yourself. Never use an illustration out of your life. If you do, it's pretentious. It's coming over like a holier than thou. Or, look at me. We were to avoid all references to our sin. But he said, now it's 20 years later, and you know what they're teaching in seminary? 
as much as you can, bring in your own experiences, because that's the greatest validation of what you're talking about. People like to say, do you know this out of experience, or is it purely academic? And so I felt more comfortable using myself as an example since that time. And I'm going to do that just for a moment this morning to illustrate the point of what it means to take up your I'm naturally very materialistic. <laughs> I have to admit it. I love beautiful things, good things. When I was a boy in high school wondering what I was going to do with my life, I thought I want something that will let me drive the nicest car, live in the finest neighborhood, in the finest house, and travel the world. Oh, I just wanted it all. And I looked at the professions that might give that to me. Any of you knew of, none of you are old enough to remember him personally, but Henry J. Jarethick was president of Milton College. And after his retirement as president, he went around to the small high school and gave them what were called vocational tests to see what you were gifted to do and try to challenge young people in high school to go to college and to develop their skills. Well, when he finished with me, he said, you need to go in the field of the arts. That's where you get started. Well, I was already interested in architecture. I love architecture. So I said, I'll be an architect. I know you were in Rome recently. There were wonderful eating places. There were all sorts of things to see. I wanted to see that magnificent architecture of the past, the Colosseum, St. Peter's, all of the buildings that represented the best in architecture. When we were in London, I wanted to go to Westminster Abbey and St. Paul's and Buckingham Palace, and then I would go to the British Museum. I loved architecture, so I decided to be an architect. There's something inside this So I decided that I'd be an attorney. Now, that's where the money is, right? <laughs> in terms of becoming a lawyer because I love research. I love debate. I can think on my feet. I said, I've got the attributes that you need to be a good attorney, a good lawyer. There's something inside this. I was a rising senior at the university. I didn't know what I was going to do. A friend of mine who had been a friend all through college knew from the time that he was a boy that he wanted to go into train transportation. He loved trains, and that's what he had trained to do. He knew all his life what he wanted to do. And I was so envious of someone who knew what they wanted to do. And we were sitting on the lawn in front of Ayers Hall at the university at the beginning of summer school in my senior year coming up. And we were talking about what we were going to do with our lives. And I blurted out, and I think it's the first time the thought had even occurred to me. But suddenly I realized, I blurted out, whatever it is I do with my life has to be something that will make the lives of other people better. It can't be a selfish vocation. It's got to be something that will be a benefit to other people. I didn't know what that would be. Not inferring that a lawyer does that. <laughs> but that wasn't my motive in being a lawyer. <laughs> A few weeks later, we went to Lake Junaluska. There was a rising young evangelist 
who was preaching at Lake Venalaskas. He hadn't been brought in all the big crowds yet, but he was making a name for himself. A young fellow named Billy Gray. So we went over to hear him. Now, he didn't say anything that night that changed my mind. I don't remember where he said it. I remember the title of his sermon was Watchman, What of the Night? He was preaching to a group of returned missionaries. And all of a sudden, a door opened that I knew. I don't know in what capacity I have to go into the ministry. And I announced it to my parents that night. It was that quick and that certain. That was over 50 years ago. My mind hasn't changed. No time since then have I ever questioned it. It's been a certainty in my life, but it denied me all these things that I wanted. It didn't give me that fine car. I'm driving an 81 Toyota with over 300,000. Oh. <laughs> there goes my BMW. <laughs> and takes a more value. changes in what I wanted out of life. But I discovered how easily they came. Now, I'm still materialist. But that's way down on the ladder of my priorities. No longer the top of it. It's something I enjoy when it falls into place. But I chose to become a minister because there was a feeling within me, this is what charge from God is you are to serve as a Talk about rewards. I don't have a bank account. I don't have all the many things that are visible to the human eye. I wouldn't know where to begin with my rewards. When I was Pastor Gatlinburg, a couple in our church, Roy Maples, who he and his wife owned the whole city practically, to Gatlinburg Inn, built Hunter Hills Theater, the Mountainside Theater, and put on the play Chuck E. Jack, some of you may remember. It was too big a thing for them to carry as a family project. So they gave it to the University of Tennessee, and the University of Tennessee converted it into a theater for their drama students and their music students. Well, they were using the theater at the time that I was pastor. And because all of our members were down on the street taking the tourist money on Sunday, we didn't have enough members to build up the choir. So we hired the singers from Hunter Hills to be our choir in the summertime. And one of these was a girl who played the lead role in Dark of the Moon at the theater. Fantastic story. Beautiful young woman. Miss Tennessee got election. And she put together a bit Sunday morning after I finished preaching and I was out on the patio greeting the visitors as they left. Suddenly she came rushing out of the side door, rushed up to me, grabbed my hand, pressed it to her mouth and gave me a big kiss on the hand, looked up into my face and it was radiant. And she said, you'll never know what that sermon meant to me this morning. I had no idea that a girl with promise like that, something had happened.
got many letters from visitors at the church in Gatlinburg. You don't get letters from your members, but if somebody's visiting, they may write you a letter. And I got a letter from a 14-year-old boy from Iowa. He wrote, Dear Reverend Eastridge, I go to church every Sunday, but I get nothing out of it. There's nothing inspiring. It's just a matter of going because that's what I'm supposed to do. But I came to your church on Easter Sunday, and suddenly you made Christ become alive. I got excited about being a Christian, and I couldn't wait to get back to my church and do something about it so that I could make my church what I found in you. What kind of rewards can you get? I can tell you many such instances. I don't want to. Because the point is made. When you are obedient to Christ, blessings come that money came back. So when Jesus met the crowds after he had been with his disciples, he said, I want you to follow me. But to do so, you must deny yourself. Put the Father's will in him. You must take up your cross. That is, be obedient to what God calls you to do. Daily. Because God uses us daily to carry out his will. Follow me. You must take my life. Be the kind of person that I show you. Here's the clincher. What profit is there if you gain the whole world and lose your soul? And material life is less than 100 years. Eternity is forever. Jesus said, if you deny me before me, wants to hear those words. I don't know. Is this a powerful message? Any comments or questions? Somebody gave him bad advice.